Guys, how are we doing tonight? Doing well? Let's go. I'm glad to be here. Hey, I just want to, I want to start by acknowledging the elephant in the room. I know that last Friday was a really rough day for a lot of you. This past Friday, you did the thing that you said you swore you would never do. This past Friday was the day that nearly all of you gave up on your New Year's resolutions. Uh, According to a recent study, 80% of New Year's resolutions ended on the second Friday of the month. January 13th, it has a name, it's called Quitter's Day. (laughs) And for those of you who are like, no, I'm still going, I'm hanging in there with your resolution, The same study found that by February 1st, only 9% of resolutions will still be intact. So that means that right now, you have either just quit or you are in the fight of your life against principalities of sugar withdrawal and fast food empires. And if you're not careful, at any moment, the golden arches could just snuff that flame right out. (laughs) Guys, a lot of you made resolutions this year. You likely did, or someone that you knew did. Uh, Maybe you wanted to work out more, or be on your phone less, or brush your teeth more. Uh, Maybe you're like, my breath is so bad, I got to get control of this. Here, I'm going to switch to a mic, actually. Does that sound good? Is that a little bit better? I'm going to switch over to this guy. Check, check. Let's go. Dad saves me again. Give it up for Stephen Rice, guys. Okay, back to what I was saying. New Year's resolutions. This year, Michelle and I tried a New Year's resolution. It's called Whole30. You guys ever heard of that? Um, And so we started this thing. And like any resolution, you start and you feel so determined, right? You get rid of the junk. You clear out the fridge. You're like, my fridge looks like a Pinterest board. Like, there's vegetables, there's fruit. And day one, you're doing amazing. You're like, I just made eggs instead of egos. Like, look at me go. Look at me go. And you start to look down on people who aren't doing the diet like you. You're like, ahem, did you know you're eating pizza that has cheese in it? And I'm going to be over here eating my kale with seeds. And all of a sudden, you're like this health expert for the first week. But then you hit that second week and your demeanor completely changes. The headaches start. Exhaustion creeps in. Withdrawals hit you late into the night like a drug addict who needs Oreos to live. And you actually start to feel worse than when you started. People are starting to ask you if you're okay. Joe, are you all right, man? And now when you talk about the diet, it's something the Lord's teaching you. You're like, no, man, I, I started this diet, and, and yeah, the Lord, he's, just, he's in this season with me. He's just guiding me through this season. It's been a trial. They're like, dude, you gave up pizza rolls. I'm like, it's a trial, man. This has been hard. And uh, you start to look at the people over the course of that second week, and you're like, 
you guys are the people I made fun of that used to eat pizza, and now you're the very ones that look happy, and I look sad. And, and this is happening week two, and then you reach that dreaded night, January 13th, and you're so desperate to taste a carb that you just completely fold. Temptation overtakes you. You open the Oreo sleeve, and it's over. And then you do the thing that everybody does when you cancel your resolution. You blame the legalism. You're like, dude, I had to get off that diet, honestly, because I'm so legalistic. I had to quit. Like, I am the most legalistic person ever. I don't understand grace. I'm done. And this is exactly what just happened this past Friday. My wife, Michelle, looked at me in our living room and said, Josiah, I'm not happy anymore. I want to have fun again. I want to live. And I'm like, babe, you're not dying right now. Like, you're, you're going to make it. And she goes, I quit. And she quits the whole 30. I stayed on. And honestly, I, everything in me wanted to quit with her. But I experienced something this week that has completely changed the game. There's something that happens on the 16th day of Whole30 called tiger blood. You guys ever heard of this? Essentially, this is a real thing. On the 16th day of Whole30, your body has reached that point where it has detoxed off of the things that are bad for you, and you start to feel good again. And you're starting to feel better than you even did before. No addictions, no cravings, no exhaustion, and you feel awesome. Guys, I am riding tiger blood right now. You could, you could literally deliver dominoes to my front door, double crust, all of it, and I would punch that guy in the face and be like, I got my kale. We rocking, baby. I'll run a marathon and deliver it myself. I am, I am rocking on this tiger blood. Do you guys realize how fascinating that is, though? So many people, like Michelle, will never make it through a diet... I love you so much, Michelle, so much. <laughs> so many people will never make it through a diet because on their way to feeling better, they start to feel worse. So, and so what people do is that they falsely draw the conclusion that because I don't feel immediately well, I must be going in the wrong direction. When in fact... Their discomfort are the very signs that they're heading towards the health they really want. In other words, we love our immediate comfort so much that we have a natural tendency to think anything that could threaten it is not good for us, but bad. But I want to warn you, of why I think this way of thinking is really dangerous. I think this way of thinking that is so deeply embedded in our culture for immediate comfort, that's probably more deeply embedded in your lifestyle than you even realize. It's dangerous because I believe that it runs in direct contradiction with the mission that Jesus has for your life. And so I want to read to you a story where I was challenged in regards to my comfort. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and find that. We're in Acts chapter 16. 
And we're starting in verses 16 through 24. Acts 16, verse 16. All right, it says this. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. So this story starts with Paul and Timothy on their way to pray. Now, if you remember last week, Stephen unpacked Paul and Timothy coming to Philippi, led by a vision that the Lord had given them of a Macedonian man saying, come, help us. And so they arrive in this city, and on the Sabbath day, they go down to the river to preach the gospel. And if you remember, they preach to a group of women who are there. And one of the women that overhears them talking about Jesus is Lydia. And you heard last week, Lydia, overhearing the gospel, surrenders her life to Christ. And just to add the cherry on top, she gets baptized and then invites them to live in her home. I mean, you cannot have a better start to a church plant than that. Like, you come, someone overhears you talking about Jesus, and is like, what must I do to be saved? Can I get baptized right now? Oh, and will you come live in my mansion with me so that I can fund your ministry? Like, this is how it starts. God's like, T-ball, Paul, bat, just, just go for it. So that's just happened. And now Paul and Timothy, they're going back to that same spot to pray where their little church group of women was meeting, just their C group girls that they're leading. That's Paul's flock right now, just some C group girls. And this is where, it's just important to know, this is where they believe the ministry is going to take place. Well, on their way to church, they run into someone expected. Verse 16 again, it says, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. So Paul and Timothy are, are met by a girl who predicts the future. Now to fully understand what's going on, you have to understand that word divination. That word might be in your Bible for fortune teller. That word broken down in the Greek is where we get the word pythos, which is where you and I get the word python or serpent. Bad thing to find in your backyard, one of those. And without getting into an entire kind of study of Greek missiology, the people believed that Apollos had come down and slayed this gigantic serpent beast who had the power to tell the future, and that Apollos had deposited this gift of fortune-telling into certain women like this. And so people from all surrounding areas would come to a girl like this Asking for her services, paying for her services, wanting to know their future, thinking that she had a gift. But in reality, this is not a gift at all. It's a curse. She's possessed by demons that, that run her life. And she's not just owned by demons. It says that she's a physical slave to people. And these people are making a fortune. Not just a large profit, but a fortune off of the most painful, helpless, vulnerable, shameful, embarrassing, and personal part of her life. 
every day she is dragged to the city and set up like a carnival prop to be used by society for what she can offer them. And she has no way out. This is dark. Think about right now how different of a person this is than Lydia, the first person that Paul ran into. Lydia was a woman. That's the word that the Bible gives her, woman. This is a girl. Lydia was intellectual with a bright mind. This girl's mind is run by demons. Lydia was a business owner who told people what to do. This girl is owned by people and told what to do. Lydia was a religious woman who went to church. This girl had never come near a church. She's helplessly lost and being taken advantage of. And unfortunately, this wicked business strategy built around preying on vulnerable people is not just some ancient day practice, but you and I are aware this is a modern day reality. 97 billion. $97 billion is the amount of money that the pornography industry will make this year alone. That quadruples what the NFL will make this year. Many of those dollars, the highest profiting business model ever created, will fund sex trafficking. 50,000 men, women, and children sold into that industry this year alone. Our world today is not less wicked. It's more wicked. We are still paying and promoting business that's entire strategy is built around exploiting men, women, and children for our gain. And guys, I read some of these stories. They're so heartbreaking. They're so broken. I read a story from a girl who was sold at the age of six by her mother into this industry, her own mother, to pay and afford her rent. For 18 years, she's used and abused for what she can offer. And this is story after story after story. And here's the worst part of all of the same stories. Is that in some dark, twisted way, that this evil that they hated had become the safest thing they knew. Somehow to get out of that lifestyle would be more dangerous than to just stay in it. Family threatened, income threatened, their lives threatened. If you leave, we'll hurt you. Trapped, no way out. This dials you into the kind of situation that's happening here. And I'd say maybe tonight there's some in this room who know what it's like to be trapped. Maybe not bound with physical chains or by demonic possession, but maybe enslaved to a lifestyle that has become built around the very things you hate. Maybe tonight, like this girl, you have sin that rules over your life. 
And maybe the darkest part of your enslavement to this sin is that the very things that you are deep down most ashamed of are the very things that people love the most about you. Maybe like this girl, you're trapped and there's no way out. Because to escape this lifestyle that you've become so familiar with, it costs you your reputation. It costs you people's approval of you. It it would disrupt so much of the social structures of your life that you've decided, I'll just stay where I'm at. I talked to a student this week who told me that. He said, I want to follow Jesus, Josiah, but my old life wants me back. And it'd just be, it'd be too uncomfortable to leave that. Guys, the truth is this. Sometimes the safest places we know are the very places we feel the most enslaved. And not just the safest, but the Bible teaches this reality. That our enslavement to sin is actually where every single person apart from Jesus Christ will exist. Ephesians 2 says you are enslaved to sin and darkness. Enslaved to the very things that you hate. But here's the worst problem. You're powerless. You have no way of getting yourself out. That's the kind of situation she's in. That's maybe a situation you find yourself in as well. But look at what happens next. She starts prophesying about something she never has before. Verse 17. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. Now, how odd does that sound? Satan is in control of her life, yet she's proclaiming the gospel. Did you hear that? Most High God, way of salvation. It's almost as if the demons inside her know who's just arrived. And did you see this as she starts to follow them? She starts to follow Paul and Timothy. It's almost like she's being pulled towards them. Something is pulling her. Maybe that's you tonight. You would never find yourself around a church. You you would never be found around religious people, but tonight you're here. There is something about the people of God that you don't don't even understand, you don't trust, you have questions, you have doubts, you have fears, but something in the deepest part of your soul can't help but be drawn towards God. Well, it says she did this for many days. She, she, she follows Paul and Timothy, screaming this out. This wasn't just some like, Paul and Timothy. I mean, she is screaming, convulsing, crazy. And I love what it says, verse 18. Paul was greatly annoyed. Isn't that comforting, reading stuff like that? Do you see, it says Paul wasn't just annoyed. He's greatly annoyed. He's like, he's not like, hello, daughter of Philippi, what can I do you for? He's like, you're annoying. 
you are so annoying. Holy cow, stop screaming. He's like, you look a little crazy. I don't have time for that situation right now. And it, he keeps going. Which, just for a moment, I can understand that Paul's a little annoyed and that he doesn't stop right away. Don't you hate being interrupted? Like, you're saying something like, okay, like, so the thing, and somebody's like, eh, eh, eh. you're like, oh, you should not have done that right there. I'm going to have to kill you, actually, because you did that. <laughs> like, there's something that just bothers me about being interrupted. We hate it. We hate being interrupted. We build protection plans around interruption. That's why the AirPod was invented. There is a reason that you throw that thing in your ear before Turlington. You, you were not wearing those before Turlington. I guarantee you. You saw those tents. You saw the flyers. You're like, Shunk. You're like, no, I am not signing up for the water polo team today. Lord, people trying to get your attention. We hate being interrupted. We hate it. Interruption, <laughs> once again, I hate it. Well, this girl doesn't stop. So she keeps yelling at him again and again and again. Imagine if one of those tables at Turlington picked up their tent and just started to follow you. You're like, stop it. Leave me alone. And this is happening for Paul. Nine day, waking up just again, again, and again. It's like, I'm trying to get to church. We hate being interrupted when we're going somewhere in in super important, and he's going to church. She won't stop. Lady, I got my C group girls there waiting. They're at salt. They don't know where to sit. But then Paul does something that is going to change her life. He says this to her, second half of verse 18. Paul turned to her. You see that word? Turning around. I, I glossed over this the first time I read it. He turned around. Sociologists say that the direction you're facing is, what, is whatever you believe to be the most important. And Paul, he turns around. And he faces her. And she's probably a little bit taken back. And he, he says with a frustrated and even annoyed heart, words that will change the rest of her life. Turning to her, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says at that very moment, the spirit left her. Think about that moment just for a second for this girl. Her entire life up until this point has been controlled by other people. From Satan to her owners that drag her around to be used nine to five, day in, day out. She's only ever heard sentences like, come on, let's go. I'm paying you for this. We need money. Start talking. She's only been called names like demon-possessed, serpent, evil, scary, filthy, used, dark, unworthy, slave. But this day, there were two words that graced her ears that she'd never heard before. Jesus Christ. 
two words that would change not just her spiritual reality, but would set her free from a life of slavery and from the world's opinion. And I want to speak to you tonight. If you could say, I relate to this girl who feels trapped in sin. I want you to know tonight person that thinks I will only be known for the things in my life that are wicked. That thinks I will always be just a victim of people's opinion of me. That thinks I don't have the strength to get out of this struggle. Those same two words have power to free you as well. Jesus Christ. There are actually no other two words. Not work harder. Not be better. Not more religion. Not more church. Not good works. Not less sin. Jesus Christ. The Bible says those two words are the only two words that can save you from a life that you don't have the strength to save yourself from. When you come to understand the meaning of those two words and come to know the one who goes by that name, the world will have no use for you any longer. There is no sin that you have committed or are actively struggling in that could possibly stand up against the weight of God's grace towards you. There is no mess that you have created for yourself that his life cannot free you from. Jesus says there's no name that the world could give you that could possibly compare to being called my son or my daughter. This was a miracle moment for her, and tonight could be a miracle moment for you if you would simply transfer your trust to those two words, Jesus Christ. This is an amazing moment, but it's not just an amazing moment for her. It's an amazing moment for Paul. Think about this from his perspective. The most frustrating, the most annoying the most unexpected part of Paul's day became the most significant moment of her life. Do you see, just for a second, can you see with me the power of God orchestrating this moment? Hear me. God is so powerful that he can use an interruption to change someone's eternity. Sometimes the miracles that God performs don't appear world-changing. Sometimes it's just stopping to talk to the person that nobody will talk to. Sometimes it's just stopping to talk to the messy person. I had the joy of being interrupted by one of these messy people this summer. Uh, I went to a pool party and I met a kid. <laughs> you might know him. His name's Travis. And um, I remember first glance just thinking, dude, ooh, wow, you are crazy. You're you are something, Travis. Uh, the way he talked wasn't like me, to put it kindly. The things he did wasn't like me. And I just thought, oh, there's, maybe you should leave. Well, he, he shows up again a week later at a volleyball tournament. And the same thing happens. We find ourselves in conversation. I'm thinking, aren't you the kid? 
that I thought was really weird. You're back. What are you doing here? And, and judging by the way he talked again, I go, wow, he still doesn't talk like me. He still doesn't live like us. But then somehow his agnostic roommate brought him to church. Two weeks later, silence comes to church, and I go, oh, my goodness. I'm running into you again. And so I feel the Lord just say, hey, throw out a text. Just, just hang out with him. And we go to coffee, and I blubber over my words and say something about Jesus Christ and how he changed my life, and I invite him to surrender his life, and he doesn't. Two days go by. He goes back to West Palm where he's from. He calls me two days later, and he goes, Joe, I'm all in. I have fallen in love with Jesus Christ. Whatever is next, I'm ready for. And in that moment, I go, well, all right. Uh, and I, I feel the Lord lead me to invite him to live into my, in my house, which maybe wasn't the Lord leading because Michelle was really upset about it. But I'm like, Travis, do you want to just move in with me? <laughs> I have a wife, and, and uh, I found that out later. But Travis moves into my house, and we start doing life together. We start reading the Bible together. We start praying together. We start talking about what Jesus has done in our lives. This summer, Travis is going to Brazil to share the gospel with unreached people. I guess what I'm really just trying to tell you is that what if the person in your life that seems the furthest from God that most annoys you by the comments they make, that most frustrates you by the way that they live, that could even threaten your reputation, are the very people that God is saying, it's them. It's been them the whole time. Stop for them. In fact, those annoying comments, they're just a cry for help. Jesus was willing to be interrupted, wasn't he? One commentary says the ministry of Jesus was just him being interruptible. Jesus was just always meeting those people on his way somewhere else. And what's funny is that his disciples would always tell him, don't stop for them, Jesus. That's the crazy person. That's the paralytic. That's the woman with internal bleeding. That's the leper. Those are the messy people. And Jesus looks at them and he says, oh, you don't understand why I'm here. I came for the messy people. I came for the people that nobody else stops for. They are the reason that I'm here. So I'd ask you tonight, who's yelling at you? Who do you hear in your head? Who's frustrating, annoying comments towards you are actually just a cry for help? Who's the messy one that nobody will stop for? God doesn't need a church to do this. He doesn't even need, get this, he doesn't even need your heart to be in the right spot before he can change somebody else's. He, he just asks you, will you turn around? Maybe one interruption in your life God will use to shake eternity. Well, look at how this story ends. It's not what you expect. Verse 19 through 24, it says this, after this miracle moment, it says, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace, the authorities, 
bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disrupting our city. They are Jews. And for promoting customs that are not legal for us Romans to adopt or practice. Look at what happens to them. The crowd joined in the attack against them. The chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. What does the crowd do here? Crowd surf Paul and Timothy through the streets. Hooray! You saved the girl who needed help. Here's a souvenir, Paul. It says Philippi on it. Great work. No. Drag them through the streets. Beat them. Flog them. Chain them. You're telling me that they, this crowd treated Paul and Timothy like they did something illegal when all they did was interrupt the only illegal act happening in the city? That's how the story ends? How could this be, God? How could this be what you had in mind? Your spirit led Paul and Timothy to this city. Your spirit led Paul to turn around for this girl. And now everybody hates him and he's in prison. What the heck, God? That's not what following you is about. No, no, following God is about protecting my comfort and occasionally doing things for God that he rewards me down the road. No, no, following God is just coming to church, being in my group, and maybe, just maybe occasionally talking to the person in my C group I don't really want to talk to. Wouldn't you be frustrated if you stepped out in faith and this happened to you? You think Paul was frustrated? You think he was sitting in prison going, I'm so confused right now. How could this happen? I came here to help and this happens? I shouldn't have stopped. Come on. Now, I want, to hear, I want you to hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, recalling his suffering that he'd experienced in his life. 2 Corinthians 11.24, it's on the screen. It says, five times I received 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I even received stoning. Three times shipwrecked. Spent a night and day at the open sea. Frequent journeys I faced. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers at sea. Dangers among false brothers. Toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, cold, without clothing. But here's what he says just a few verses later. I rejoice in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties. And here it is. For the sake of Christ. What was Paul thinking? Oh, so wronged. No. 
Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice. And just a few verses after our passage, you'll see it next week. They're singing worship songs in prison. Maybe Paul knows something that Christians like us, like myself, struggle to believe. That the path of following Jesus is not a path that protects our immediate comfort, but a path that promises it will be interrupted through suffering. Paul knew what Jesus had said. Words that you've probably never seen on a bumper sticker. Words that you've probably never seen on the keychain. Words that have probably never been said at an altar call. If you follow me, you'll lose your life. If you follow me, you'll have to pick up your cross. Jesus was pushing the crowds away, don't you see? He told the disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You're going to lose everything probably. You're going to be ridiculed for my name. You're going to suffer for me. First Peter says, dear friends, just hear these words fall over you. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. As if something unusual were happening, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for my name, you are blessed because the spirit remains on you. Paul rejoiced at suffering. He knew it wasn't the sign I'm going in the wrong direction, but it's actually a sign that I'm following the path of the one who went to the cross so that we could go free. Paul says, I'll go to prison any day so she can go free. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted. Jesus stopped for the messy people. Jesus would, Jesus would be falsely accused of a crime he never committed. Jesus would be beaten. Jesus would be flogged. Jesus would be imprisoned. Jesus Christ, our Savior, would die and suffer in your place and in my place. We, the collective messy people, Jesus would die so that we could go free. And now Jesus looks at us. He says, will you go? Will you go to the messy people? Will you go to the messy people even if it costs you everything? Even if it costs you your comfort, your reputation, what he thinks of you, what she thinks of you, what your uncle thinks of you? Will you go to the messy people? I'll finish with this. The, I learned something this week about heaven. The Bible says that you and I will have a resurrected bo a body with no blemishes, no nothing. We will have a new body. Some of you are like, awesome. I want to be taller, a little taller than I am. I hope that happens. But there's one person in heaven 
who will still carry his scars. Jesus. And his scars will be in heaven to serve as an everlasting reminder that they are the reason that we're here. Will you go to the messy person? Jesus came for the messy people, which is you and me. Let me pray. Lord, your word says in Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, you went to the cross to show us the path, to show us the path, to shine a light on the path that we must walk to go after the messy person. Jesus, your scars told a story. They told our story. God, as we go after messy people, we're going to experience scars. There will be people in this room hated, left by families potentially, told that they're crazy, but Jesus, maybe our scars will tell a story too of someone who's sitting in this room who's never put their trust in those two words, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Empower us as we go out and suffer temporarily, awaiting your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.